0: Welcome to The Lundown, a podcast analysing breaking news in architecture, housing and planning produced by Open City, which is a charity dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible and equitable. From now on, by signing up as an Open City friend from £5 a month, you can get early ad-free access to The Lundown and free tickets to live recordings throughout the year. Plus, you get all the other benefits of being an Open City Friend too, including access to an exclusive programme of year round in person events. Also, by donating, you're supporting independent journalism, keeping the Lundown free and accessible for others, and directly helping Open City's wider educational work, particularly with children and young people from underrepresented communities. To sign up as an Open City Friend and get early ad free access to the Lundown, click the link in the show notes or visit opencity.org.uk slash friends. Thank you. On with the show.
1: A new wave of bank bailouts. Could this be 2008 all over again? As living standards continue to collapse, striking rail workers win a pay increase. The sale of new homes is set to plummet to new lows. And the IPCC's final dire warning on climate change, act now or it's too late. My name is Sahib Pachada and I'm an architect and partner at Cullinan Studio, and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The Lundown. This is the 100th episode of The Lundown, and to celebrate, I have a very special guest joining me here today at Bureau in the Design District. Merlin Fulcher is an architectural journalist, head of worldwide tours at Open City, and host of The Lundown. Welcome to the show, Merlin.
2: Thank you. It's great to be here for Lundown 100.
1: Merlin, how are you feeling with the tables turned and being a guest on the Lundown?
2: I'm feeling very nervous, but also excited.
1: Yeah, well, we're really excited to hear your uh, your take on this week's news. OK, let's get going. This soared over another possible 2008 banking crisis this weekend, after a £2.5 billion rescue package was dished out to save the troubled banking giant Credit Suisse. This story and the subsequent tremors in the stock market has been covered widely by the national and international media amid worries these failures could spread out to affect the wider global banking system, resurrecting painful memories of the financial crisis that plunged Western economies into the recession in 2008 and 9. Shares in Credit Suisse dropped 62% in Zurich on Monday after rival giant UBS agreed to take over the 167-year-old bank over the weekend. And The Telegraph reported that thousands of jobs are set to be lost in the city, where the two banks employ around 10,000 people between them. This follows the sudden collapse of U.S. lender Silicon Valley Bank the week before, which prompted the federal government to intervene, and a $30 billion injection to Californian Bank First Republic from U.S. lenders, which failed to prevent a slump in stocks. So Merlin, what's going on here? We're seeing a bank bailout every weekend at the moment. The stock market is in turmoil, and yet governments are telling us everything is fine. A spokesperson for PM Rishi Sunak said the UK banking system remains, quote, safe and well capitalised. How has this been covered by the media this week, and what should we be believing?
2: It is an absolutely uh, fascinating story, this one. really should have been on the front pages of all the papers over the weekend. It wasn't. It was pretty much fronted up the uh, business section. Uh, Really, what's happened is that last weekend, Credit Suisse uh, was bought out by UBS, uh, another Swiss bank. And um, the scale of this, you can't really downplay it because... Credit swiss is is like a massive banking institution obviously Switzerland's kind of famous for banking uh, and UBS is another one but they're rivals you know like this is like Tottenham buying West Ham if banks had as much love in society as football teams do it would be a big deal okay uh, and why has it happened well it's happened uh, because there's growing fear over the stability of banks um, So that was last weekend. The weekend before it was Silicon Valley Bank uh, that was bailed out uh, by the US Central Bank. Uh, The Silicon Valley Bank is like a smaller kind of like tech startup bank. They're not as institutionally prestigious, you could say, as something like Credit Suisse. But they were a big deal. They were probably a big deal because a lot of faith and optimism is placed in technology as like the saviour of the economic uh, financial system. Maybe it isn't. Um, But obviously what that meant is a kind of snowball effect where there was a lot of concern around banks generally uh, as a result of silicon valley bank collapsing uh, and then um that kind of circled around and people looked at credit swiss uh, credit swiss has got quite a kind of dubious track record in recent times like they've been involved in in various uh questionable activities you know for example they were caught up in corporate espionage after hiring professional spies to track outgoing executives um, they had to admit to defrauding investors as part of the Mozambique tuna bonds loan scandal like sounds salacious you know some people are trying to make money out of tech Credit Suisse was like going for some tuna bonds uh, they don't exactly sound like the most dynamic interesting you know, banking fund they probably deserved like the collapsing confidence that they got um, they were also involved in Greensill Capital. Uh, People might remember that was the one that David Cameron was lobbying hard for uh, when he was not Prime Minister anymore. Now, the bank had been uh, losing a lot of money, 7.3 billion Swiss francs in 2022, and so they were doing a kind of restructuring plan. But if you think about it, if if society or like banking, investing society was looking around for like an easy kill, it was probably Credit Suisse. Like they're probably the one in like the least good shape. And I think a lot of people right now would be thinking, if if Credit Suisse can be a kind of sacrificial lamb, if, if that one can go, UBS can like take the carcass and feed off it, and then everyone can just calm down a bit, that will be it. That will be the end of this mini banking crisis. Um, and I think they're probably right. We're probably not facing a systemic banking crisis of the kind we did in 2008. Uh, that was when one bank collapsed, but it was clear that pretty much every bank could collapse for the same reasons, OK? So I don't think we are facing a systemic banking crisis, but we're definitely facing a kind of systemic crisis in a lack of imagination. Um, because like, if we're just bailing out banks again, like it's just not money well spent. Like Banks are just not delivering the kind of growth uh, and the kind of investment that we need, certainly here in the UK. Um, so, yeah, there are definitely systemic problems. It's probably not a banking crisis this week.
1: OK, well, there's still some Hollywood blockbuster level stuff in there. I mean, do you think some of the lack of coverage in the media is a sort of attempt to downplay the situation or do you think it's pitched about right?
2: Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, I think that you know, there was always in the past this idea that there wasn't enough economic ist- understanding in the general population that you could run stories like this and people would be interested. I think this story is super clear. It's a very simple story. And I think that it should definitely be um, given much more prominence uh, in the media. The, because banking crises like this rely on confidence, if you don't talk about it, it does help to deflate the issue. OK, so if this happened in a week when nothing else was happening and all the kind of might in the media and all of the pages had to go on a story and there was no Boris Johnson story to talk about, there might actually be a different outcome. Although I have to say this is not a UK crisis right now. It's it's a global one.
1: So let's move on to the next part of this story, which is that Sky News reported that the British arm of Silicon Valley Bank handed out between 15 to 20 million pounds of bonuses just days after the HSBC snapped it up as the parent company faced insolvency in the US. So the payouts, which were approved by SVP's um, UK's new owner, HSBC, have been described by sources as, quote, modest and a sign of confidence in the talent base. So Merlin, this seems to indicate a level of security or even rewards for people within the financial sector. So what does this current crisis mean for the quote ordinary people in England and London specifically? Should people be bracing themselves for another drop in living standards as we saw after the 2008 crash on top of everything else that's going on?
2: Yes, absolutely. People should be bracing for another collapse in living standards. That is happening. That has also been happening for quite a long time. And it's been happening since the 2008 financial crash. The reason our living standards are collapsing is not like directly because Silicon Valley bank employees in the UK are getting bonuses. Right. But it is a very galling thing to happen at the same time. Now, cast our minds back to 2008. Banks collapsed. Banks were bailed out. A lot of bankers lost their jobs. Some kept their jobs. Some, within short space of time, were getting bonuses again because that's the way the, the, the employment culture works within that sector. Um, and that just looked, looked very weird for everyone else at the time because what happened after 2008, um, through various like, political upheavals and changes of direction, we then had pay freezes being put across the public sector. So a lot of people, uh, their wages didn't change, but because of inflation, that meant they basically had a pay cut uh it also at the same time a lot of people lost their jobs a lot of people a lot of employers used it as an excuse not to put up wages because of um economic uncertainty although things did settle down fairly well in some sectors quite quickly um you know there was a there was a big chunk of time when no one got any pay increases all the while um there was a stark contrast between the fate of the average person and the fate of the average banker um You look at the period now with some perspective, it's clear the rich got an awful lot richer and the average income got an awful lot lower. Okay. Um, So this is shocking. It is shocking that Silicon Valley Bank employees in the UK are getting 15 to 20 million pound bonuses immediately after their parent company collapsed in America. Now, the UK division was not going to collapse. Okay. So, like, you know, fair play to them. They were running a successful business in the UK. and they exist in a banking culture where people get paid bonuses okay but it is just it's just bad bad optics it looks bad okay it's a decision by hsbc it makes hsbc look quite desperate to be frank like hsbc is a mega bank okay their job as bankers is to invest money loan money in a way that grows economy so that their business continues to flourish right Why do they even need to buy Silicon Valley Bank in the UK? It's because they themselves are not investing in technology in a way that's interesting or productive for the economy. So they think, OK, what can we do at HSBC? Let's snap up a smaller company who are doing this stuff. But realistically... um, It's all just hype like these tech companies are not delivering the kind of economy that we we want. They're not delivering the kind of investment or growth in productivity that is creating rising living standards in this country. So it's just like HSBC just getting in on the hype of tech investment. Give these people some bonuses to keep them there. But once again, like not really addressing the underlying problems in the society that got us into this mess in the first place.
1: Yeah, that's pretty, pretty serious stuff. And I guess bonuses are always going to be difficult to stomach when there's been wage stagnation. Let's move on. So in, in his spring budget last week, Chancellor Jeremy Hunt announced plans to make 12 new investment zones, which he likened to Canary Wharf. Um, all across the country and specifically in areas with pockets of deprivation. So Merlin, does this idea look totally out of touch, given the developments we've seen over the last seven days?
2: This is really, really interesting. And um, yeah, this was Jeremy Hunt's first budget. So, like one of the signature policies that we could sort of recognize from a built environment perspective was this uh, idea of 12 new investment zones. There's like a 400 million pound pot for leveling up partnerships. Um, there's going to be a third round of level up fund allocations worth at one billion pounds. The idea is that this is going to unlock uh, what he describes as like 12 new canary wharfs okay and these canary wharfs are all going to be in the north of england um but it's already been pointed out that the total sum of money being put aside for these canary wharfs is is pretty small so for example the amount of money being spent on freezing vehicle fuel duty is 4.8 billion pounds in just one year okay so like yeah, this is a tiny pot of money to create like a big splash. And realistically, the only big splash is in headlines and in people's imagination. Like you're not going to see 12 new Canary Wharfs and like the property sector has pretty much instantly said that isn't going to happen. But also the question is like do you even want that to happen? Like I don't I don't know how much time Jeremy Hunt personally or professionally has spent in Canary Wharf. Um But, uh, like, yeah, it's visually impressive from a distance, but, like, any kind of uh, close interrogation of it reveals the fact that it's it's not the best place to work. Um, It's not exactly energy efficient, but also... um, it clearly represents a somewhat outdated model of the way people will uh, conduct business in the workplace. Like This is like big corporate offices, like massive lobby space. You go up, banks of desks. Employees don't really want that anymore. They want more like the kind of work hotel, the groovy experience. Um, employers don't want that anymore because most of your staff are in on a Wednesday and you're paying for a building that's empty Saturday, Sunday, Monday, most of that building is not being used for its entire lifetime but then also like look at the context of Tower Hamlets where Canary Wharf is like we've been reporting on this show how um, in Tower Hamlets there is like severe overcrowding Um, the wealth inequality in the borough of Tower Hamlets is appalling like Canary Wharf doesn't really seem to have benefited the locality and if you've got this idea of 12 Canary Wharfs across the country so say these are in like red wool wall, red wall areas okay um so what what's that going to mean like it's not if it is on the model of canary wharf it's certainly not going to mean wealth for the local people it just means that you stand next to someone on the train wearing nice clothes you smells of perfume like you know that that's basically the impact of canary wharf on on this part of london like it it, it just doesn't it just doesn't trickle down because we know that trickle down doesn't work
1: well staying on the topic of commercial properties. Uh, The new minimum energy efficiency standards scheme is set to come into force on the 1st of April. And this is part of the government's push to achieve net zero emissions by 2050 and will require commercial landlords to make their properties have an energy performance certificate rating or EPC rating of E or better. And there's similar controls being put in across domestic landlords too. Um, So Merlin, what's the impact of this going to be in London, given all the things you've just said, especially about working culture? You know, might we see a lot of office and business spaces actually closed down?
2: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. And I have to say, my response probably is not going to be that generous to the owners of commercial real estate. Um, you know, an office is effectively a building that people work in, and obviously this includes um shopping and retail. And, you know, the buildings are expensive and constructing them are as expensive and owning them is expensive. And over time it's become basically a financial instrument. Okay. So people go into these businesses with certain assumptions about how much money they're gonna make out of that office over a certain given an- period of time. A lot of wealth is extracted from that process. Uh, but realistically, what happens? The real world is not like that. You've got a variable called climate crisis, um, which is just not factored into any of these, uh, these propositions, right? And it comes back to the point that ownership of property. Obviously, there are benefits with it, but there are risks as well. Okay, and like any, say, like leaseholders of a block of flats will have what's called a sinking fund where they put aside money for a rainy day when the lift breaks, uh, when environmental upgrades are needed. Right. And like if you run any business, like you have got to make decisions based on risks. Okay, so you've got to look at the risks that are going on in planet Earth. Okay, and it is quite clear for a very long time, that one of those is climate crisis, Okay, Like, it should take nobody by surprise that some legislation or regulation will come along. And mean that you're going to be significantly out of pocket to bring these buildings up to standard. What's more shocking is the fact they didn't do this themselves, OK, because that's obvious good financial sense. The point is, is that the whole model of commercial property ownership is just fully extractive. OK, it just it does not invest back in the buildings or in society. And that is why our society is not growing in a productive way. That is why living standards are collapsing. And like, if you want an analogy for it, it's like... Yeah, the UK economy really is basically just like getting a racehorse that won some races at some point um, and just like relentlessly feeding it performance-enhancing substances, like never looking after it in the way it should be and just trying to get it to win as many races as possible. Take that money, spend it on other stuff, like treat the horse as badly as possible and it's life's over. Like that's it. It's like yeah, our economy has been run like that, okay? And what we need is to shift to one that involves investment. So I would say, yeah, It is a crisis for these firms. It's a crisis they deserve, okay? because ownership has benefits and risks. Right. And to live professionally in a society where you think that that's only going to have benefits is ludicrous. Um, Not least to say that in an amateur sense, a lot of amateur investors in property seem to think that's the way it goes, that you're only going to benefit. That's not true. History shows it to be otherwise.
1: Thousands of maintenance staff and signal workers in the RMT union have voted to accept an offer from Network Rail in a significant breakthrough in the ongoing industrial dispute the BBC reported this week. The package, which was voted for overwhelmingly by a 90% turnout, amounted to an increase in salaries of between 14.4% for the lowest pay grade to 9.2% for the highest. And hopefully it means an end to the most disruptive rail strikes and raises hopes that similar deals can be struck with other RMT members who are still poised to strike on Thursday and Saturday next week. This all comes as a groundbreaking panorama investigation reveals the shocking extent to which UK wages have failed to keep up with the cost of living. Citing statistics from the Resolution Foundation think tank, the BBC's Ross Atkins reported that 15 years of wage stagnation has left British workers £11,000 worse off a year. In 2008, the typical UK household was £500 worse off than those in Germany, and now, the investigation found, British household incomes are £4,000 further behind. That equates to an eightfold increase. Torsten Bell at the Resolution Foundation said this stagnation is, quote, almost completely unprecedented. Nobody thought it could happen. Merlin, is the recent deal between the maintenance and signal workers and network rail proof that striking works? And what impact could this move have on other striking rail workers and indeed other sectors, for example, teachers, nurses and doctors?
2: This is a fascinating story, and it's really interesting uh, how it's been covered in the media. Obviously, it, you know, it took headlines. Like a lot of people were, were quite relieved uh, to read that um, the trains are going to be back on track, so to speak. Obviously, this is only um, RMT with Network Rail, it's not RMT's negotiations with the um, train operating companies. So that's why strikes will continue. Um, but obviously, Network Rail, that's the kind of arm of the government. <laughs> so interestingly, that yeah, the government had always been so kind of strongly against any kind of public sector pay rise. Right? Um, and saying this would contribute to inflation, um, that the uh, that the RMT have, have won this strike. So, it, you know, you, you know, one can feel kind of like euphoric about it, right? But um, if you dig into it and you think, OK, you know, strikers winning a pay rise, well, OK, pay rises should be happening anyway. We've effectively had 15 years of pay cuts uh, because pay increases have not kept uh, in place with inflation, right? So really, rail workers should have been getting this anyway, OK? OK typically striking works okay so everybody's like relieved and surprised uh, that this strike worked but this is a fact yeah if you pay strikes deliver pay increases and it should be an encouraging thing to teachers, nurses, doctors, other people who are striking bus drivers. Um, it should give them the spirit to to keep on going. But also it, it should give the other side of the negotiation a, a bit of a kickstart to like get on and give them the pay increase. OK, because we need these services to run. So, um, yes, yes. It is good news, but it is something that should be so self-evidently obvious. And it should be so self-evidently obvious to anybody on the other side of the table. Give the people the pay rises they deserve.
1: The Resolution Foundation figures are very sobering um, from the Panorama documentary, um, but they do help put the scale of the current cost of living crisis into perspective. So what was your reaction to the Panorama that aired this week? Did it make you feel sort of emotional or how, how, how did you react
2: it was a real landmark moment. It was a show presented uh, by Roz Atkins, who's like a kind of rising star BBC journalist, and it was working with the Resolution Foundation, quoted Torsten Bell uh, quite heavily in it. Um, and, yeah, you know, it's only a 30-minute show, but it was just, like, packed full of, like, extremely heavy-hitting statistics, which showed how bad the situation is. Like, probably, you know, the one you in your intro, you're saying, you know, people are £11,000 worse off a year than they would have been if our economy and wages continued to grow in the way that it had been doing up until 2008 okay and it's like when you think about how messed up our society is now whether it's like extreme politics or um just like uncertainty around housing or employment like all of it tracks back to this because so much of the world we live in today was kind of formed at this time pre-crash like nothing in our in our um approach has changed which is what is uh is, is so shocking so that since 2008 you know for various ideological reasons we went down a route uh, which was you know described as like a long-term economic plan or like fixing the roof while the sun is shining but like we look back now with this panorama show and we see that that means that you know the average person in britain is like for the wage disparity is four thousand pounds now w- compared to Germany, whereas that wage disparity used to be five hundred pounds. So, like, there is an eight times difference between what's happening here to the average worker and what's happening to the average worker in Europe's largest economy, in Germany. Um, yeah, and like, what does what does that mean? Like, if you have eleven thousand pounds less a year, okay, so you're probably not going to invest as much in education, uh, education that could you know enhance your career and give you and your community more opportunities you're not going to spend as much money um in investing in like tools or equipment and other things that could like advance your your ability to work or your ability to enjoy life or give back to your society as a volunteer Um, you're going to have less leisure time you're going to have poorer health you're going to have less time to invest in looking after yourself Um, it is an extreme thing like some things became cheaper um like technology is way cheaper than it used to be we have free access to ai apparently um you couldn't imagine that 15 years ago um to some extent um basic costs like food and energy stayed quite stable but like now none of that is the case like energy costs are through the roof food costs are ratcheting up housing costs are up it's quite an extreme scenario and like we're seeing it every day. Like twenty five percent of people in Britain are struggling to get by, fifty percent of people expect to be struggling to get by. Um, yeah, there's there's no optimism.
1: Yeah, I mean, in last week's budget, Ch- Chancellor Jeremy Hunt did say, quote, the declinists are wrong and the optimists are right. We stick to the plan because the plan is working. Merlin, what do you make of that statement?
2: <laughs> it's astonishing. I mean, yeah, this is it. So they're saying stick to the plan because the plan is working. And it, obviously that references uh, George Osborne's um, Moniker, which was this uh, long term economic plan. You know, it was like anytime there was any kind of criticism, it was like, no, we have a long term economic plan. Well, if the long term economic plan is to make everyone poorer, then, you know, fine. (laughs) Yeah, that's what you think. There was an issue, there was a statement issued uh, by the Downing Street that was in uh, the panorama, and it said, yeah, we actually UK actually has the fastest growing economy and that's because we're sticking to the plan and the plan works, something along those lines. It's like, OK, well, fastest growing doesn't really mean anything, OK? Like, you can go... You can, you can have fast changes, but that doesn't mean that you have uh, an economy that's working and providing the kind of sustainable growth based on productivity that enriches society, OK? So, like, the long-term plan, I mean... Pff- yeah, if it's if it's to do with like brokering saving things like Silicon Valley Bank then it's just fantasy economics. Like it's just just pour more money into little dreams that technology is somehow going to save the day. Is there a long-term plan that would work? It probably comes back to the investment in energy efficiency that we discussed earlier.
1: Yeah, it's amazing how all these stories are linked and it links kind of perfectly into the next story that we're looking at which is About the sale of new homes, which are set to plummet with a slowing market and stricter planning expected to cut sales by 50,000 a year, according to predictions from real estate company Savills. The Telegraph covered the report, which suggests new build sales could fall from 145,000 to just 90,000, and possibly even fewer, as developers grapple with falling demand for new builds due to higher mortgage rates and the end of helped buy. Savills had said that the government's 300,000 annual house building target is unattainable without intervention, adding that local planning authorities must give consent to more projects as the number of sites gaining planning permission has fallen by nearly a third in five years. At the same time, more pairs of eyes turned to the housing market crash, which looms ever closer on the horizon. Writing in The New Statesman this week, John Ellidge said, quote, The boom has gone on for so long that the crash when it comes is going to be terrifying. People who've worked their backsides off to get on the ladder are going to be ruined. Some will lose their homes. He went on, quote, a reduction in house prices will in the short term be a cause as well as a symptom of yet more economic malaise. Well, Merlin, what's this all about? Why is it a big deal that the sale of new houses is predicted to go down?
2: It's an absolutely fascinating story. Obviously, we cover the housing crisis a lot in the UK, uh, so listeners will be very familiar um, to the state of housing delivery, uh, which basically um, is quite constrained and it does rely on the private sector a lot. Now, in the past, you used to have a certain amount of private sector delivery and a big chunk of public sector delivery. And as a result, you had a kind of healthy mix that dealt with the reality of Housing, which is that it cannot be entirely left to market forces, but for ideological reasons, uh, we've sort of tailored and t- sorry tapered towards a scenario we're in now, where 70% of the delivery of new homes every year comes through. Private house sales, okay 70%, right? So that's an awful lot. And anecdotally think about yourself, think about your mates. I don't think 70% of your mates are buying homes, right? Most of your mates are complaining about the difficulty of renting a home. Okay, but this is the scenario we're in. So what does it mean if the number of house sales is slowing? Well, um, it it basically will mean that that fewer homes will be built uh, because in the private sector, they're not going to build homes that they can't sell um, and they don't want them just sitting there as a built home, not on the market. That costs money because you borrowed money to build that house in the first place. This means there will be a slowdown in house building. A slowdown in house building is one of the major indicators of a recession. So it means that we will be going into recession. Like this is a strong indicator that recession uh, is coming uh, hopefully it won't last very long because that's going to be an appalling thing for many many people um especially uh anyone looking for a house you know it's going to make it harder um but certainly uh, if fewer new homes are being built uh, there will be fewer house sales there's less demand for house sales a lot of people um if you're privileged enough to own and live in a house you simply will not sell your house you'll just hang on to it and wait for the prices to go up so there'll, there'll be less market activity um we do a We apparently do a pretty good job in this country of, like, obscuring what's really going on. People don't talk about massive discounting in housing as much as we should. Uh, It's been happening a lot. It should be a front page story. It isn't. Um, We don't really have, like, price discovery in the housing sector that you do in other areas. So it's like, you know, every day I have to buy certain products like gas and electricity. So, like, the price is quite clear what's going on. Housing is treated like a market, but it, you know, it's controlled by estate agents and the people who dictate the pace and when sales happen. Um, so like you don't see the real prices because you can simply like slow it down and change it and you can do all kinds of stuff to to make things look better than they are. So when they look bad, they really are bad.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you might have already alluded to this, but who who's this going to impact then, given that the average cost of a first home in London is 587 1,700 pounds, the deposit for which would be a staggering 188,700, which people obviously just have lying around, um, according to new data from Halifax, that is. So is this an issue that just faces the rich or um, are will there going to be ripple effects through onto, quote, ordinary people?
2: £587,700, your average price, it's just, it's insane. Like, no one, no one can really afford that. And certainly, like, having a, a £188,700 deposit, well, who is that? Basically, it's either someone who's had some kind of epic inheritance or some kind of epic bonus. Maybe they work worked at Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, or it's, um, uh, you know, somebody who's already on the housing ladder and they've um you know, built up this little portfolio, this little a- asset egg uh, that they can then use to buy that place. So, like, is that your average person? Probably not. But what does that mean for average people? Well, I mean, there's like an enormous tolerance of people just to like suck it up and burden it. Like we've seen that. We've seen that in 15 years of collapsing wages. So... Um, I think for a lot of people, it will just mean like more grind. But what it should mean is that this becomes more of a political issue. And it should, if our our democratic institutions and our processes work properly, what would happen is it would be very clear that this system of relying on house sales is untenable. It has run its course. And what we need is a reframing of the narrative, around housing delivery we actually need what's called a housing policy rather than fantasy economics uh, or like boomer economics of like infinite asset uplift okay but will that happen uh, I, I am an optimist so i think that the impact of this should be political change
1: okay well i mean a price crash has in the property market has been banded about for a long long time i think you know we're all used to hearing it in the news, but house prices consistently have remained high and continued to ascend through crisis after crisis, pandemic, Brexit, and they even fared much better than expected after the, the 2008 crash. So are the property prices invincible, Merlin?
2: In the 2008 financial crisis... House prices did collapse significantly, but, like, everything was in trouble. Like, there there have been collapses in house prices. For example, like, super expensive London in the centre... Super expensive housing in the centre of London is down. It hasn't really been covered that well. Like, it's, you know, it's not... It's not a story that's been picked up very well. Like, people are discounting a £100,000 off their homes. There's, there's like, Nine Elms luxury flats. They've had millions taken off them in order to sell them. A house price crash in a way that affects everybody... um, It could happen. Uh, The thing is, is that there is still a lot of demand and there is not enough housing, um, but also socially and politically... We know that everything will be done to keep house prices up. It's, yeah, I'd like to think that a house price crash would solve all of our problems, but it won't. Like, what we really need is a sustainable approach, uh, a, a much more mixed market for housing, which gets, lets people access public housing quickly and on demand to scale up and to scale down for, the, for their needs. You know, it, it needs to be like any other marketplace. Um, it is not.
1: The world's leading climate scientists have issued their final warning on climate change. Act now or it's too late. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, report which was picked up by The Guardian, yet again warns that only swift and drastic action can take us back from the brink of irrevocable damage. The fourth and final part of the mammoth sixth assessment report, which was set out on Monday, is expected to be the last assessment while the world still has a chance of limiting global heating to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, said, quote, This report is a clarion call to massively fast-track climate efforts by every country and every sector and on every time frame. Our world needs climate action on all fronts, everything, everywhere, all at once. Merlin, what's this all about? How has this been covered by the media this week?
2: Yeah, this is a fascinating story. Um, Obviously, I'm not like a a climate scientist, um, but I I appreciate the work that's been done by climate scientists over eight years uh, putting together this, this report. And it is a massive, massive story. So effectively, what they're saying is like we're on the brink unless we change everything right now. It's irreversible. Like the damage to nature, to the environment, to human society is catastrophic. And if I think about it, I'd probably say that's like a, they're under they're understating it. Like the, if you think about this as a report that's been going on for years, people have been warning about climate crisis since the 90s. Scientists have known about it since the 1970s. Uh, our industrialised society and sort of political order have done their best to like hide it as an issue for a very, very long time. Like you're up against an enormous drag, which has been like multi-decade drag, which has been used to like stop the change that is required. Um, it would not surprise me if somewhere along the process of the these eight years like it's been a bit watered down to the extent they're saying you've still got one more chance we don't really have one more chance we've really gone beyond this point and like we need to do some pretty drastic stuff pretty quickly um like a fundamental rethink of pretty much everything um and like yeah there's to a certain extent like that's what we do as individuals um as individuals, we're already demanding to our politicians and global leaders to do something on this. Uh, you just only have to look at the controversy around like new oil enterprises or new coal mines and so on. Like people want something to be done, uh, and this is a report that is aimed at governments. Okay, so it's the governments are meant to read this and they're meant to get their act on pronto. Uh, and we know they're not. Like you, know, you can see, that, like there is so much policy which is just not taking this seriously. As a piece of news, it, it, I think I feel it was given good gravity. Like it was, it was reported properly. Um, it is a, it's a really, it's a, it's a really, really big story. But like you know, if you if you turn to like the right wing press, I say if you look at like the GB News channel. So like yeah, there are big sectors potentially of society that just do not see this as an issue, or like at least you know, there are. Um, there are voices where well, you know, one could say even propagandists who will happily like bury this story and say, um, yeah, this is an infringement on civil liberties and people should be able to drive ten liter engines and um, fly everywhere and so on and so forth.
1: Yeah, I mean the the last chance you know angle is you know it's really scary, but I, I do feel sometimes that you hear this with every report that comes out. Like now is the last point, and you feel like that's the the point, the line in the sand, but then you know, it comes again and it says now. So when is right now? When, you know, you you kind of alluded to this already that it, you know, it was like, you know, several years or more ago was right now the point at which we had to change things. And have we actually gone too far? (sighs) I mean,
2: okay, so there was a really interesting statistic this morning um, that I saw on uh, on Twitter, and it was to do, someone called Simon Evans, and they were saying the number of UK homes getting loft or cavity wall insulation um, has fallen forty two percent and is now ninety eight percent below levels seen in twenty twelve. Um, also, that another tweet by Simon Evans saying that we are now nine point eight billion pounds poorer because we did not adopt the energy efficiency improvements that were supposed to be put into new housing uh, but were scrapped by the coalition government uh, who described it as green crap okay cast your mind back to 2008 2007 before the financial crash Energy efficiency was a big issue. Everybody, everything that was being said right now was being said back then. Okay, we had a financial crash and that was used as a pretext to dump a whole load of really important regulations. For example, here in the UK, one of them was called Code for Sustainable Homes. It would have given us zero carbon homes. Um, It was scrapped. It was scrapped because it was seen as like regulation that was holding back business. Oh, yeah, that same business that's given us a society with no growth, with no productivity. Right. This was the stuff that could have solved that crisis and solved the energy crisis and it's just kicked out because we don't really have the kind of uh, political debate or narrative which allows us to do sensible things um i still think we can make big changes now but those changes are not about like me or you putting our potato peelings in a composter like it needs to come from the top like it you know it, it has to come from there like that is it like that is the fact. And. Um, What's concerning is that it is not happening here in an advanced uh, democratic society. Like, and it, in fact, it's it's gone the opposite way, and we're seeing a populist backlash against uh, climate science. Um, it's certainly not happening in authoritarian societies either, and it's not happening from industrial society, from the companies. It's not happening from the tech companies, the so-called saviors. You know, so like, where is it going to where's it going to come from? That is very troubling.
1: Well, I mean, it's an issue that obviously um, has seen a lot of coverage, especially with the various climate protests from Just Stop Oil and XR, Extinction Rebellion. And um, in response to, to these sort of protests, the government has implemented quite draconian anti-protest laws, which incidentally I see in the UK downgraded in civic in the Civic Freedoms Index. And it now ranks alongside countries like South Africa, Poland and Hungary. Merlin, how confident are you that the government has listened not only to calls from its citizens, but also from the world's top side?
2: The increase in popular uh, sentiment and in protest about climate crisis has made a huge difference to it being really high up the political agenda. It cannot be ignored because so many people in society feel so strongly about this. Cannot downplay the importance of protest enough because, as we we're saying, this change has to come from governments. It has to come from uh, companies. Um, and like, if it can't happen here in a you know, so-called advanced democratic country, where is it going to happen? It needs to happen here. Uh, in this, we need to have a space where um, the correct pressure can be put onto government to make the right decisions. However, uh, yeah, we are seeing a really uh, a hard-handed response, which is taking away civil liberties, which is basically specifically targeting climate protesters it seems and just saying like we're having none of this
1: yeah well i mean in response to the report that aj did write that the they think you know well that in the built environment sector retrofit is key to avoiding climate disaster so how important do you think the role of retrofit is in the uk's response to climate change
2: globally it should be a massive issue um yeah there are some parts of this, in the world where people are building more things but other parts of the world like here where there's an enormous amount of historic built environment like london the vast majority of london is old buildings okay there's enormous potential uh, for retrofit in our built environment um it needs to be brought up to environmental standards or that would save us a huge amount of money um but also like it is totally possible to deliver everything we need with what we already have um or at least if we do have to take a building down or repurpose it to recycle as much of what it is is there as possible um it is is quite frankly a complete crisis of imagination and a deceit when somebody says a building needs to be pulled down to be rebuilt
1: yeah and what sort of things do you think um we need to support retrofit in this country i think it's been covered on the london before things like vat um, and so on but you know what else is there is there anything else you could add to that
2: there's a like certain amount of planning reforms that can be done. So, like we said, how the City of London wants um, developers to say how they could repurpose the existing building and um, as a counter-alternative if they're coming forward with a, a new building proposal. Um I, so I would probably say regulation on investors. I think investors culturally need to realise that it's like the, sh- the show's different now; like it's a different game, and enjoy that, and like actually get imaginative about their business and think, rethink how it could work in the present era. At a smaller scale, like residentially and homeowners, like we need to have a bit of a culture that just celebrates like making your house cool and environmentally sustainable.
1: Yeah, very true. Right. So uh, after all of that. Very, very intense stuff there um, We're going to have some lighter stuff with the culture section So, um, uh, in the culture this week uh, The Times ran an article dissecting the architect designed huddle of skyscrapers Which forms the capital's largest regeneration project, Nine Elms the author, Melissa York, joined one of Open City's guided walking tours to find out about one of London's most controversial new neighbourhoods. Merlin, as well as being a host of The Lundown, you're head of tours at Open City. So why are walking tours a good way to truly understand an area?
2: it's so cool that Melissa York and the Sunday Times covered the Nine Elms walking tour. It's a new walking tour that Open City's created. Uh, One of our tour guides, Nick Edwards, uh, who covered King's Cross, uh, is now our expert on Nine Elms. Nine Elms is an area of massive transformation, but unlike King's Cross that was in one ownership, this is in many ownerships, and you see a kind of... um, uh, Uh, a a thrusting capitalist approach to urban development. So it's like different companies fighting to build the tallest building or get the most money out of the, the smallest piece of land. Um... It's not to everyone's taste. I mean, I, I grew up in Battersea, I know Battersea really well. I remember what Nine Elms used to be. It was it was nothing, it was just warehouses, like there was not much going on. Um, I think definitely the idea of building new housing to house London's growing population is a good idea, and that was the rhetoric around Nine Elms at the time. Not really what has happened, uh, because it's it's not exactly key worker housing. Um, but um there is something there that wasn't there before. Um it's created an awful lot of construction jobs and architect jobs, you know, that stuff had to be designed. Uh, so there's like there's all kinds of different ways of reading the, the picture. For me, uh, I have always taken enormous delight in exploring London on foot or on bicycle. Um, so I probably... You know, knew a lot about no, have discovered a lot about London just by going around seeing things and then searching on the internet to find out what they are and what the story is and walking tours is basically a great way of um of going with someone who has already done that for you um who's usually a really fun person that you get to spend an hour or two with um being out and about and enjoying london is a great thing it's much better than sitting behind your desk googling things um so yeah it, it, it's a great joy to see a walking tour in the press being covered like this because it is a walking tour setting the agenda like oftentimes features um in property sections of some newspapers um are kind of framed by like prs you want to like sell investment in whatever zone three area of london um so this is quite cool because it was a tour guide setting the agenda. It is. Objective objective um and uh, yeah it's really cool to see that i hope i hope that more tours open city tours and tours by other people um are creating uh creating news and discourse around built environment
1: okay and then finally the 20th century society has just published a new book all about edward cullinan also known as ted at the practice that he set up in 1965 which is of course where i work um, now called cullinan studio um so um a lot of people will already know about TED, but um, he set up our practice as a cooperative and he has a kind of extensive back catalogue of really exceptional um, projects ranging from houses all the way to the, um, the Ready Mix concrete um, offices which were listed um, as part of a 20th Century Society campaign um, a few years back. So um, there's lots of really, really interesting design nuggets um, in in. Um, Ted's kind of back catalogue of projects to to look at Um, and this book features you know photographs drawings and is designed as part of a series uh, on different architects of the 20th century and designed to be accessible to everyone so regardless of whether you're an architect or not um, there should be something in there for you and it's available now if you go to the 20th century society website merlin it's been a pleasure to feature you on the show where can listeners go to find out more about you and your writing
2: thanks i really enjoyed it um i'm mostly active on twitter so it's at merlin uh but i'd recommend um sign up to the open city newsletter for all the information on tours and podcasting that we're doing subscribe to the podcast if you're not already um and also uh subscribe to the architect's journal and architecture review which i also write for
1: amazing thank you merlin it's been an absolute joy
2: You've been
0: listening to The Lundown, a podcast from Open City in association with The London Society. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which covers all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Lundown and a ton of other benefits while supporting independent journalism, please become an Open City Friends today. The link is in the show notes. The Lundown is produced by Poppy Waring, Merlin Fulcher, Rachel Capel, Ella Jessel and me, Phineas Harper. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible and equitable. (laughs)